0: This is episode six of the audiobook/ slash podcast project called Unconscious Subconscious, voiced, written, and produced by me, Matt Rebar. Chapter negative 22, Light Among Darkness. Throughout my time within Gignosco, there was no normality of time. I had said this many times throughout my trip and it still held truth. It seemed like I had just met James Bois an hour ago as another companion on my journey, and now the boy was dead. Yesterday, I met Helena Price, and she had died as such. And it only felt like two days ago that I had introduced myself to Rodney, who was used as entertainment by savages. I knew it would had to be a couple weeks within Gignosco, at least judging by the sky. But that was from this little thought projection that I was, and not from the real flesh and bone. But I felt like real flesh and bone. My knuckles gripped the steering wheel, the bones almost splintering as the flesh turned white. I could feel the adrenaline dying upon my body like a stoned fucker at a fast food drive through My muscles ached while I could sense the hardened blood upon small pieces of my skin. I could feel my own mind even as I drove the black jet of the now-deceased governor into the darkness. I should have avoided the dark fog, but the fear to get away outmatched the logic of direction. And so now... I was lost in this unforsaken mess. I couldn't see in front of me, the small lights of the jet only going forward so much. Early on, though, my question of the fog was addressed by the all-and-mighty Clark. As much as college was refreshing and a change of pace, my natural independence began to manifest itself. I didn't love isolation, but isolation did love me. I began to just go to class and the other couple clubs I was in. I didn't go out on the weekends. I just laid in bed like some sack of shit. It was an encompassing fog which blossomed outwards in ways I didn't expect. Where are you? I cried, knowing full well I wouldn't receive an answer, even though I wanted one. Clark, where the fuck are you? He would not answer my direct questions, but his commentary would explain the biome I had chanced upon. Clark, or just his subconscious, I suppose, was a rare father who rarely came around. And when your father was there for the basketball game or for the dinner, he never gave you what you wanted. I was a beggar who needed bread, and he continued just giving me an apple. The apple was worthless. I was thankful for my bounty, but at the same time, I wanted bread." To the point where I became angry and would discard the beautiful fruit given. And now, four companions down, countless days explored, truth far from being told, I was feeling as dark as the fog which blanketed my vision. What was the point of all of this? I had felt more emotion in Ignosco than I had ever felt in the world, and that scared me. Was I a reflection of myself? Perhaps this was not the true Sidney Mercer, but this was some dimensional twist. It explained why I felt things, because the real me never felt things. I suppose it was pointless to question it, especially because there were no answers. Instead, the blindfold continued, and I wondered how long I'd be stuck here in the fog. I didn't dwell on it too long until I saw four faint lights. The light pierced through the darkness like metal through flesh. It was clear where they were coming from, so I aimed my plane towards them. The lights grew brighter until they exposed their original source. Are those lighthouses? I muttered to myself, although Clark King took my rhetorical question as law to answer to. Darkness in its pure form is suffocation. It's the kind of dead pressure you'd feel without a helmet and a bandit on Mars. The kind of pressure you'd obtain within the ocean. It's a full-body takedown like some wrestling show. But there was a light in the Brothers of Lambda Beta Tau. They were the ones to see me for a social side. Their four pillars stood for academic, athletic, involvement, man. Their lights shone, and I, the deer and headlights, joined in my sophomore year. I assumed the four pillars of the fraternity were each modeled into a lighthouse, which in turn was connected to the soft rotation of the main rock. The main rock was half rock, half large estate. The estate glowed as well, with lines of light connecting the four lighthouses and estate. Overall, the place looked like a glowing plus sign in the eternity of light absence. On top of the roof was a small runway and an airport, so I decided to land my jet on the airstrip and see what this place was. I landed the jet and exited the vehicle and was met by four men. The four men were all 22 or so and younger. They wore greasy, college-esque clothing, and three of them held drinks. The drinkless one extended a hand. I'm Jerome Barkley, the vice president of philanthropy. The man smiled. He had black, bold-framed glasses, a cleft chin, parted hair, and brown-black eyes. He had what most Americans would call a dad bod, and seemed the least greasy of the bunch. Sidney Mercer, I muttered. I accidentally got into the fog. Thankfully, you guys were all lit up, so I decided to get off here for directions. Of course. That's why we're here. Jerome smiled. Good old Jerome. Who are you guys? I asked, having been given the confirmation that Jerome had actually been a real physical person. Admal etab uet. Jerome spoke the words of his fraternity, which I could detect was the backward spelling of the Clark King's Earth fraternity, Lambda Beta Tau. Very nice, I nodded. So, is it possible to get directions? Absolutely. Jerome nodded. Why don't you come in for a drink? That sounds nice. It did sound nice, mainly because I was still wired and tense from the events that had happened back at Gear Castle. Jerome's buddies introduced themselves, each having just as much of a white male college name as the other. There was no way in hell that I was going to remember these names after I left here anyway. There was a glass elevator and staircase room on the first floor that led downstairs into the rock slash frat house. I followed the boys and walked through a couple doors before I entered the main living room. In front of me was a crap ton of college-age boys, all drinking, smoking drugs, and having a good time. It was as though I had been transported into a college party, although there were no girls within the room. But the lack of women didn't seem to affect anyone as the bass rumbled through the room. Interestingly enough, the music was deep 80s with a hint of early 80s sprinkled through like paprika. The walls were thatched and covered with posters. Rock icons, pop icons, hot girls taken from a Sports Illustrated, movie posters
1: covered the walls. In the middle of the room was a grand staircase which led downstairs. Welcome to the pad, Jerome smiled. We have 114 brothers and we take turns chilling out at each of our lighthouses. We have groups of three who do eight hour shifts down at the basin of the lighthouses. Everyone works around here. There is no slack off. Jerome walked me through the large room
0: and then into a hallway. The original three buddies he was with were gone. There were no windows which showed the dark fog within the hallway. Some of the doors were open to expose small, dorm-like single rooms.
1: So off the main room were four hallways. Below the room, we were just in his a mega kitchen and a mess hall. Below that is our meeting room. Below that is our common chiller living space, which is melded with our laundry room. Jerome's explanation of the frat house combined with the rock was hefty. These hallways contain the living spaces. At the end of each hallway is naturally the lighthouse's cap. We crossed the hallway and entered a large room. I didn't know which direction or whether
0: we were upside down. As we entered the threshold, direction had no meaning. A bright light flashed in the middle of the room like a miniature sun. One could not stare into it without blinding oneself. Part of the room had been designed as a shelter, and so Jerome moved me into the small space. There, three dudes drank beer and played a video game. In front of them was a large glass wall which showed out the dark fog illuminated by the light provided by the frat guys. This is incredible, I muttered, sitting across from Jerome and enjoying a rum and coke. There were eight washers and dryers, some of them humming their way through loads. A lot of the space was devoted to tables. A couple guys were studying, studying what, I wasn't sure, while some
1: just did miscellaneous work in the comfortable chairs. What are they studying for? Oh, we're all students, Jerome explained. We're part of Roberts University. It's online.
0: Interesting, I nodded, and yet all in a frat, living here and watching a lighthouse.
1: I guess it might sound a little confusing. But for you, that's how it's always been. Always? Jerome smiled. So what got you into the dark fog? Well, I was being framed for murder, so
0: I used this guy's jet to get away. Framed for murder? Jerome repeated, his jaw agape. That's fucking crazy. How come that happened? I was a guest in someone's place, and they took advantage of a random man to stage a not-so-random crime. Don't worry, dude. That won't happen here. Well, I won't be able to stay long, I explained. I have to keep going. Where to? Another murder for you to take credit for? No, I'm actually still trying to solve a mission. A mission? You spy or
1: something, (laughs) Sidney?
0: Close. This was the closest I had come to telling the truth of my occupation. I couldn't remember what I had mentioned to Rodney. So what's the mission?
1: What are you on the run for?
0: I'm looking for Clark. Clark? Jerome Barkley probably hadn't considered
1: me crazy, but now he was definitely wondering. He's just a god to summon a myth to others. You're looking for that? Think you can find him? You sound skeptical. It's hard not to be skeptical. I was at first. What swayed you? I thought about what swayed
0: me of the existence of Clark. Granted, I knew I was in the mind of Clark King, so I suppose that evidence had always been the basis of my belief. I just know. How do you know? I don't think I can tell you. Mysterious. Jerome sipped his drink and eyed me suspiciously. I couldn't blame him. The whole situation did appear somewhat confusing. There's something about you. You
1: Probably realize it. You carry some kind of energy. Is it a good energy? Oh, naturally. I sipped my
0: drink and forced a pause in the conversation while Richard Clark came to me. Out of all the light within the fraternity, it was Jerome Barclay to which I had found brightest. He ran the fraternity's philanthropy and made sure everyone got out to the fun events he'd put on. We became close, even though we were opposites. He was the loud one. I was the reserved. He studied people. I studied machines. We didn't agree on a lot of small things. We had different favorite beers, different pro football teams, different interests. But for some reason, our conversations were so exposing. We'd go to a party and come back to the house and continued conversations while getting smashed. It was the kind of smash where you'd brown out. I wish I could remember everything Jerome Barkley said. So where are you heading to? Jerome wanted to know. I'm not sure. Where do you want to go? Anywhere to look for Clark. You're really set on
1: this mission. Jerome sighed as if he was a parent trying to dissuade a child. Can't think of anywhere around here where Clark could be. Two towns across the way are fucked up. Nothing holy there. You could try Sludge Swamp. I hear there are some spiritualists and thinkers down there. A place
0: that is called Sludge Swamp sounds like more of a place I want to avoid. I chuckled. But if you think someone might know something, well, I might be pulled to check it out. I think it's your best bet. Good, then can I get directions there? I have something better than directions. What is that? Jerome Barkley grinned as he extended his hand forward. You've
1: got a new accomplishment. I took the hand, all while apprehensive. And that guy is me. Why should I bring you aboard? You don't know Southern Gignasco. So that makes you an expert? More so than you.
0: So far, your argument has relied on obvious facts, and has not been convincing in any
1: way. You can't go alone out there, Jerome explained to me. I don't know what part of Gignasco you're from, but you can't just go all wild out there and expect to be fine. I'll help you. You're one of the main operators around here. You can't just bounce. Consider it like a vacation for me, Jerome answered. Besides, I'm not going to find Clark with you. Most likely I'll hop around a few places with you and make sure you're safe before coming back to my humble abode. There
0: is nothing about this place which is humble nor
1: an abode. Do you agree? Jerome
0: bypassed my joke, eager to come along. I didn't want to agree. I had yet to have a surviving companion, but there was a glint in Jerome Barkley's eyes which mimicked the companions I had previously. I wondered if I had a choice. Jerome seemed set on traveling with me, and Clark's subconscious, no doubt, wanted me to take him with me. Fine, but honestly, I just need help getting to the swamp. There, I can look around for those spiritualists or whatever. Sounds like a plan. Jerome Barkley winked, his eyes still sparkling as if they'd never die chapter negative 23 quacks and quags once again i was plunged into the dark fog within the governor's black jet it wasn't as though the governor needed the luscious black jet which had a cockpit and room for a couple passengers which in reality was devoted to luggage "'Jerome Barkley sat in the second-in-command seat as we began heading what I was told was east. "'The fraternity had bid us adieu before we boarded to leave, heading off towards the swamp to find some potential leads. "'Finally, like a final crashing wave of water or sound, the black fog evaporated. "'I turned back to see the behemoth, which didn't care what others perceived of it. "'Now I looked in front of me. "'Not too far down below, perhaps 300 feet or so, was an expansive swamp.' Great trees rose out of the swamp, shielding the water below. In some ways, it mimicked the awakening jungle, although the major difference was that it was much smaller and that the floor of the swamp was water. "'Oh, shit,' I whispered as I looked for a place to land. "'We're about to run out of gas!' "'Why didn't I think to refill the plane?' Jerome exclaimed. "'I shouldn't have assumed we had enough gas!' "'Calm down. We just need to safely land.' As if the jet was pushing my specific buttons, I could hear the clicking sound as the airplane scuffled to find fuel that was not in the tank. We'd soon be plummeting down to the ground. I looked down to see if there were any immediate crash landing sites. There was a very small open part of the swamp which contained no high growth. That would perhaps be our only way of surviving this. Wait a minute, I muttered, looking over to Jerome. I think I have an even better idea than crashing the jet with us in it. The plane was spiraling out of control and I immediately grabbed Jerome. Jerome didn't struggle but seemed paralyzed as I ran with his weight to the door of the plane. I opened the door to the plane as boggy marsh flavor and heavy wind filled the airplane. I jumped out of the airplane while Jerome screamed. We fell through the air before I was able to stabilize us in mid-air. Our airplane, without our bodies, exploded upon contact down below. Jerome and I slowly made our way to the ground, as if descending a staircase. Jerome hopped out of my grip, and both of us were now thigh-deep in swamp water. Well, welcome to Sludge Swamp, Jerome sickly muttered, already quite unamused with the biome. This place is filled with all kinds of nasty critters, so be careful. I had my bag upon my backside and not a scratch on me. The airplane, which was now a smoldering fire slowly being washed down by the swamp, screamed an entrance of new prey for whatever nasty critters. "'Which way do we go?' I inquired to Jerome, even though I didn't assume he'd know it. Jerome shrugged, and I pulled out the map I had been given by Badalov back on Earth. I hadn't used the map once, but I wondered if it was going to come in handy. The handheld device lit up and produced a single holographic neon light. Indeed, it showed the landmasses and everything I had seen. I was impressed by the detail, although all of it had been provided by my memory. Parts of the swamp were already mapped out, although there wasn't too much detail. "'Well,' "'The go-kart track isn't too far from here,' I explained. "'Maybe we can head there and then use that place to find out more about the swamp.' "'That sounds good to me!' Jerome shrugged. "'But before my entire legs could move forward in the water, "'there was a buzzing sound as an airboat came out of the deep marsh and into the clearing. "'Jerome and I immediately spotted the newbies, although they had yet to spot us. "'Both were sporting overalls and no shirts beneath the overalls. "'Their hair was thinning, although both had bushy auburn brown beards "'which were ungroomed and out of control.' The rest of their bodies were just as hairy while their teeth radiated gold. "'Why, Red, I recognize that we might have come across our airplane or some shirts,' the one spat, his voice as thick as syrup and as hillbilly as I had ever heard. "'Nick, you's right. I bet them still down there, don't you think?' Red asked his buddy. On the airboat behind him were carcasses of meat which laid without movement. These two seemed like surveyors of the swampland, and I was not enticed to meet them.' Hmm, I thinks we can get plenty of meat to pan in it there, Bill. Ned continued to stare out into the field of water and tree stumps. Jerome and I were currently hiding behind one of these tree stumps while the airboat's fan whipped the small boat forward. The smell of moonshine and meat had been kicked up from the fan as well as an overall sense of B.O. I slowly and quietly put away my map and pulled out my gun. Jerome eyed my gun with bright coin-like reflections while I immediately imagined bullets within the chamber. Red and Neck, clearly a general reference to Rednecks, were not close to us, and I was hoping that Jerome and I could make a break for it. I did not want a conflict with these men, for better or for worse. Considering their voice alone was a grating presence, I figured the rest of them would be nothing more than aggravating. While we were moving slowly across the landscape, the airboat ripped through the water and came across both Jerome and I. We were like deer in headlights as we looked up to the grinning, toothless faces of Red and Neck. We're looking here, Nick, Red wooed as he eyed us with pleasure. We got some humans trying to escape. And you're not humans, I inquired. I guess we ain't fully human now, is we? Nick chuckled. A large crease formed in the middle of Nick's throat, the kind of cut to the throat that one would take if getting murdered. The crease opened up to reveal a dark mouth with sharp white teeth and a tongue which slithered with curiosity at those in front of it. I just know since I was a baby, I was always extra hungry. Red and Neck raised their guns and immediately I dove under the swamp water. Jerome followed after me as the air above us rang out with bullets. I had the gun in my hand and I was loaded to fire. I dove up for air a little ways back from the airboat. I began firing as Red and Neck readjusted their boat. Red continuing to unload bullets while Neck handled the logistics of the airboat. Jerome was a little bit of a distance from Red, Nick, and I, which was a smart idea. At least I could partially go on the offensive. More bullets rang out between Red and I as Nick steered the boat and to keep up with me. I ducked behind the rotted and dead tree stumps, all of which were more than perfect cover. Finally, I was able to nail Red, and he howled out in pain. Fuck! Son of a bitch got me! red snarled before firing so many rounds into me and the tree that i felt like winning was no longer inevitable red's neck once again split open to reveal the mouth which wanted to dine on me i wasn't sure whether these guys were some kind of creature or merely eaters which seemed to be their own separate subspecies red nicked me hard on the side of my shoulder and blood began to mix with the swamp water i dove underwater and swam up behind the airboat i think you got him Nick smiled over to Red. Neither of them noticed me from behind their unmoving fan. The airboat bobbed in the water a bit, while the natural swamp sounds became the background. I could see the area where I had left. It looked rather bloody, even with such a miniature wound. Yeah, dear brother, Red chuckled. We gotta go down and find the body, though. It'll be worth it. Let's see if we can crack down the other. But Red's skull cracked open from one of my bullets. There would be no more tracking down anyone for Red. The mouth of his neck opened so wide and let out a large soprano shriek before Red crashed into the swamp water. Neck immediately noticed me and moved towards me. Neck punched me, and I dropped the gun off the basin of the boat. Neck and I got into a fistfight, although it was no average fisticuffs. With his two hands and bouncing feet, Neck's neck split open to reveal the second large toothy mouth and slippery tongue. The tongue began to lash out, able to go outwards about only to about a foot. The tongue was acidic, and any time it hit my body, I could feel a small burn upon my skin. I don't know who the fuck you are, but I'm not into it. I roared before cleaving Neck on the side of well, his head with my fist. With another shove, Neck was overboard and in the water like red. I immediately kick-started the fan to life while Jerome got on board. Jerome had been sort of hiding and was not invested in the battle. Before Neck could respond, we finally managed to get away. The airboat tore through the water like a missile, leaving the hillbillies in the dust. Fuck. Jerome panted as I steered the boat through the trees. I was doing my best not to kill us while we got out of the swamp. Jerome immediately began emptying the dead crocodiles and other edible animals out from the boat, which continued to add to our speed. I had gone from mastering an airplane to automatically being in charge of an airboat. Clark's voice rang out as I went 40 miles per hour through the swamp. College continued to get harder. Life continued to get harder. Certain events happened. Certain things I wanted to occur did and did not at the same time. I was growing mature. Life had been proven to rear its reality. We teach kids a facade about life in order to spare kids the loss of innocence and the stress. But eventually it'll hit you. You go from walking in forests and jungles to trudging through swamps and marshes. Your legs give in. Everything seems to give in. But what's a man to do but to continue traveling? Minutes later, we slowed down the boat and continued moving forward. We were going Sunday stroll speed when a crocodile appeared in front of us. Huh, I muttered. Crocodiles, I suppose that makes sense. It is a swamp, Jerome snorted. What did you expect? Before I could respond to Jerome's sassy comment, I felt the air flare up with heat. The smell and vibes of the swamp seemed to build up and consume me. I felt dizzy. My head began to spin. All the while, I was looking at the crocodile, who seemed prepared for something. The crocodile's eyes looked neon, while the rest of his scaly green body seemed to light up. Don't look into its eyes, I yelled over to Jerome, who looked sick as a dog. I tore my eyes from the crocodile and began staring upwards at the sky. My perforary vision could see the green beast below, and I began firing. I wasn't feeling the entire effect anymore, but I still felt woozy. Finally, I braved a look to find that the crocodile was dead. Oh, that's good. Jerome admitted, sweat pouring from his body. I was worried. But Jerome's worries would soon arrive back as four crocodiles joined the flanks of their fallen member. Before the crocodiles could woo their spell on us, I immediately began taking out their eyes. The crocodiles began thrashing and releasing pained cries as I continued to blind them but even without their eyes and hypnotic powers, they were still adamant about attacking Jerome and I. Start the boat and get us out of here, I cried over to Jerome as I began shooting the encircling predators. Jerome immediately booked into the fan and increased its power. The chase began as the crocodiles followed in pursuit. I began shooting each crocodile, but the more came to the throw. The ones who were new immediately got blinded before they could fuck up my body with their powers. A couple of the crocodiles tried taking a swipe at me, or tried getting aboard the airboat, but I was not allowing that to happen at the slightest. Finally, after what seemed like a decade of fighting the beasts, the trans sick inducing crocodiles gave up and left us alone. What the hell kind of swamp is this? I cried over to Jerome. My gun was smoking, as if it was a heavy cigarette imbiber putting away a pack. I knew there was some crazy shit, but I didn't- He didn't expect what was next, let me tell you. While Jerome continued driving the boat forward, at speeds that did not match my own brevity, there was a large ground-splitting crack. I looked behind us to see a large figure which had risen out of the ground. The figure was dark, perhaps 20 or 30 feet tall. I could not tell if it was made from liquid, gas, or solid, although the morphism upon the creature was stifling. There was a singular plastic-like mask upon the matter which resembled the face of Neck, although the plastic mask was as far from human as we had previously known Neck. Fucking trollops! Neck screamed, his voice boom-bursting through the swamp scenery and flooding our eardrums. You don't know who you'll be messing with. I am Neck! Nick's voice still carried its hillbilly charm Although the voice was so strung out with a reverb and chorus It was a twisted voice, so twisted that it almost broke from strain Nick immediately began moving forward Jerome stepped up the fan's power while Nick began forming large blobs of the material he was made of The blobs threw through the air like bombs and began landing close to and besides the airboat Shit, let me take over I cried to Jerome as I began to steer the boat Not only was Nick catching up with us, but the blobs were getting closer and closer. Finally, Nick caught up with us and flipped the airboat. Jerome and I flew across the air as Nick released another roar. Trees were cut down from Nick while Jerome and I gathered together. I pulled out my gun and began shooting at the plastic mask which resembled the old face of Nick. The plastic mask got fucked up a bit. Its chip and wear began to show. Neck continued to reach out and beat me down with its arms, but I managed to dodge. On occasion, Neck would send out a large blob similar to earlier during the chase. How do we kill this thing? Jerome asked, turning to me with fear. I don't know. Luckily, I do. A sprawling Louisiana accent rose from the commission as Jerome and I turned to see a short, slightly chubby black woman her white hair was pulled back into a bun her cheeks eyes and jawline slightly extended due to age the woman looked matronly with an apron and some kind of blouse dress number with a single wave of her hand the woman created a large dome around a neck we call these creatures negatives the old woman muttered as the dome glowed bright with deep purple energy negatives are terrible creatures with shapeshift There are a few around here, I don't know where else. Negatives love the chase and the hunt. They very rarely show this true form, mainly because this true form is way too conspicuous. If you ever face a negative, you'll notice they talk a lot about being hungry and their neck opens to reveal a second mouth. They are similar to eaters, except eaters like particular traits from humans and not necessarily the flesh and blood of a human. This is like a shot, me. Nack screamed. The plastic mask face was half destroyed by my bullets. Face me and rattle like a true warrior, not like the whore you are. Oh my, what a nasty negative you are. The old woman sighed as if she was a nanny to Neck. Y'all must not have known about me. I'm Sheila. You stepped in my lands, boy. Sheila's energy immediately coated the skin of Nack. Nack began screaming in pain as the energy immediately began eating away at Nack's body. Sheila's energy began eating Nack's mask until nothing was left. If their mask is entirely destroyed, the negative is fully extinguished, Sheila explained as the black blob immediately turned into the oblivion. You did good. You managed to chip away most of the mask. The mask is symbolic. After all, it represents the life source of the negative. Now, why don't you come over to my house for a break and explain what the hell you two are doing here? Well, we're here to look for information, I explained, as Sheila began conducting our airboat. Sheila had arrived at her own accord without transportation, although she now guided the airport with deliverance. Information? About what? Sheila asked. Her accent was much more demure than that of red and neck. We're looking for information about Clark. (laughs) Oh, are you now? Sheila laughed, her gut shaking along with her vocal cords. That's funny. Why is it funny to you? You may find that reason out depending on what else you have to say what do you want me to say oh no it's not about what i want you to say sheila corrected looking at me as if i had said something silly it's what you believe that's vague (laughs) so is life what are your names Sidney mercer jerome barclay delightful sheila smiled now tell me why you want this information "'We are looking for Clark,' I explained, "'while Jerome looked at me for guidance. "'I have been diagnosed with a mission to find Clark.' "'Diagnosed? Who diagnosed you?' "'I believe Clark himself, ma'am. "'It was a stretch, but I hoped that Sheila would just roll over with it.' "'She eyed me, her eyes looking at me "'like the atypical glance of an older woman to a man. "'Her white hair danced in the kicked-up wind "'while her matronly figure watched over the swamp "'as if she was the mother of the territory. "'Interesting.' the old woman muttered, Clark himself. We're here now, guys. The airboat circled the small patch of dry land, the only dry land of which Jerome and I had seen the entire time we had been in Sludge Swamp. In the far distance, once I could see the go-kart track in the small go-kart village, which was spread up above the large swamp. Sheila's cabin stood on the small dry land. In front of her were plenty of tree stumps. This area looked particularly dead. Sheila stopped the airboat, which caused Jerome and I to exit and onto the dry land. It felt nice to be on solid ground. We soon followed Sheila inside of the one-room cabin. Sheila's cabin reminded me of Marie Gay's cabin up in the Feral Mountains. The only difference was that Marie Gay had been an eater and had killed my companion. I was hoping Sheila was not like that whatsoever, although I would keep an apprehensive eye out on Sheila. Sheila's swamp shack was simple, adorned with plenty of photos of random individuals I didn't know. There were plenty of books, a ton of knitting, and old television in the corner of the room. The shack seemed quite lived within, as evident with the polished bed and the stacks of knick-knacks. There was a rustic element to the room, such as the record player and records which were stayed on one of the living room shelves. The living room was less of a living room and more of a lived space. Well, I will tell you my truth and hope my truth matches your own truth, gentlemen. Sheila ushered Jerome and I to seats upon the small dining room table while she immediately began preparing tea. Not everyone in Gignasco was on the same page. Clark is a god to some, a king to others, a peasant of an idea, and non-existent. Nobody can agree on what Clark is, regardless of his existence. Some claim he is human, but access powers ungifted to humans. Some believe he is an animal or a new species altogether. There is the idea that he is a god. So many thoughts here, gentlemen. I don't know why I tell you this. You most likely are aware, are you not? Sheila brought over the tea and sat down with Jerome and I and passed out the tea. I talk with Clark, Sheila confessed while mixing honey with her tea. I pray and he comes to me. Sometimes Clark comes in dreams, other times in visions. I am very close to him, even though we live worlds away, not physical worlds. Clark is here with us in Gignosco. But he is a great entity, and I am nothing more but one of his lowly servants. I know this sounds crazy, but I am telling you the truth. At least, my truth. You keep throwing around this idea of your truth, I pointed out. Are you saying that you don't know if you're truly talking to Clark? I believe I am talking to Clark. What does he tell you? Clark tells me his personal worries and his fears for Gignosco he constantly mourns for his beautiful world turned ugly there's so much ugliness in this world I'm sure you're more than aware you look like you've come from ugliness as we all have even today you we were almost eaten by a negative that alone is an example of the dog-eat-dog society within Gignasco. Clark does not want to be worshipped he just desires peace why does he desire peace? Jerome was the one to slide a question, and Sheila readjusted herself. He is a peaceful man. It was his power which created chaos and bad. You mean lavender? The word lifted out of my mouth like petals dancing onto a gravestone, which Sheila acknowledged. Ah, you're aware of lavender, the power which came from the massive energy of Clark. They are only together in association and otherwise separate in everything else. "'What else do you know about Lavender?' I questioned. "'Lavender has a different name to some of us down here. "'We think of it as a better name.' "'What is Lavender's better name?' I questioned while Sheila caught up on her tea before responding. "'Down here, to those who know Clark, "'we call it The Code.'" Chapter Negative 24, The Smell of Burnt Rubber Lavender was now the code. Why is it called the code down here in the South? Well, I'm not the only person who has heard from Clark, Sheila admitted. He has been heard in the South more than he's been heard in the North. Lavender is a vague term. The code is more akin to the truth behind Clark's powers. What is that truth? I do not know. How do you know lavender is the code, Sheila? How do you know they are interchangeable? Because Clark would talk about the Code. Clark would use both terms to describe the same, although only the deemed worthy had access to the name, the Code. So is the Code the same thing that Lavender is, the energy that's made this world? The Code was basically the identity of Gignosco and was a birthing of energy of Clark. How could Clark be the only living thing in Gignosco previous to the Code? I do not ask the will nor the way, Sheila spat. You just need to believe. It's hard to believe sometimes. If you want to find Clark, you must be willing to go past the surface, Sidney. There is something within you that makes me believe you can find Clark for your mission. Now that you're aware of the code, you might actually have a better chance of meeting Clark. As far as I'm aware, nobody's ever met Clark, but he exists, he exists. Is there anything else you can tell me? Be careful out here, Sheila demanded. That's all I'm supposed to say. Supposed to say? Clark didn't want me telling you too much. Sheila shrugged as if her hands were literally tied behind her. I don't know too much more about Clark, but he told me a few things about you. He predicted me, I questioned. Of course he did. He rules Gignosco even though he doesn't show it, Sheila casually shrugged. All I know about you, Sidney Isidore Mercer, is that Clark considers you to be on the same wavelength as he. I did not tell Sheila my middle name and it was in that moment that I realized that she no doubt was actually in talk with Clark. Sheila did not tell Jerome and I anything else about Clark. She felt she had delivered Clark's message and would not provide personal insight. Sheila did offer us some food and so Jerome and I ate while Sheila talked a little bit about the swamp. Sheila had lived in the swamp for her entire life and loved it. What's next, I asked Jerome while Sheila knitted at the table in front of us. Sheila watched with curiosity in our stitch effort to make a plan. Shall we head to the go-kart track? You mean the go-kart track, Sheila smiled. That's how it's pronounced up there. They're quite adamant about that title. Sheila's words regarding Clark were still with me, even as Jerome and I stood in the center of the go-kart track and the small collection of buildings which housed players, audience members, and staff. The track was not like some simple earthbound track. The go-karts flew upside down, straight into the sky, and through twists that defied gravity. It had been a few hours since we had left Sheila's shack, the only dry land in the entire swamp. Before departing, I asked Sheila if Clark had warned her of the negative, but she stood silent and unreactionary to my question. Sheila, indeed, was not going to be saying anything else regarding Clark. But now we were in a new land. While the fucked-up sludge swamp remained below us and cast with the negatives, hypnotic crocodiles, and the smart independent spiritualists, we were in a world of excess, entertainment, and speed. There was one race at a time, and the whole village and bleacher system was connected to the races. Cameras had been set up on the course and were broadcasting footage to televisions while festival food and souvenirs floated throughout the crowd. Names of racers appeared everywhere, some such as Mark Tombone, Shannon Petrol, and Kevin Cascadu were practically everywhere. The rock which contained the starting and finish line contained the most intriguing bleacher system. Underneath the bleachers were plenty of shops, while the rest of the rock was filled with hotels, restaurants, homes, and the other things you'd see at a city. Indeed, this place was like an operating village whose main focus was on their prize attraction. I wasn't sure what the connection would be when I came to the go-kart track, but Clark King's personalized tour soon kicked in. The summer before my senior year in university, I was given a unique opportunity to be part of a go-kart team. I knew some of my high school friends competed, but a few kids were out of town that summer. They were doing unique things such as committing to amazing traveling opportunities. I was once again working at the technology firm and working part-time at the garage. It was crazy how far I'd come. I considered myself a mastery with computer systems and pretty fucking good with cars. I think it's part of the reason I was recruited for the go-kart team. They figured I'd be knowledgeable with it. While Jerome and I watched the races and took in the high adrenaline, a man began walking in our general direction. He looked panicked and seemed to be searching for someone. The man and I crossed eyes, and he immediately lit up. I just waited for the guy to make a move, as if he was going to ask me to prom. You, the man muttered. I need you. Me, I questioned. Why? I need someone to jump into a go-kart, the man explained. Jenna Duplaga isn't feeling well, and we have an extra spot. I just need someone to fill in. I don't... Come on, kid. I'll give you a couple hundred in stones. The man's reference of stones was to the currency of neon stones, which seemed to be the norm in Gignosco. Considering I was low on money, I figured the man's offer wasn't too bad. I could create money, but maybe being in a go-kart race could be fun. Okay, I turned to Jerome. You'll be okay, right? Absolutely. Jerome smiled, looking stunned that I had been picked. I was surprised by the offer, but not surprised at the chance. It seemed that every small detail involved me to some degree. I was both a substitute for Clark King's experiences and a witness to such minor and major elements to his life and subconscious. What's your name, man? Teddy Mercer. That's a good name for a last-minute go-kart writer, the guy chuckled. I run the logistics of the races. I'm Benjamin. Nice to meet you. Benjamin led me out of the sidelines of the track the fans and onlookers were not allowed in this section Although I was soon suited up and given a rundown of what to do This was currently one of the breaks between races and the other riders were preparing themselves for the next match Soon there was an announcement of a new rider who was me The crowd seemed intrigued but they wouldn't be sold until they saw me in action Minutes later I was prepared to be the best I could be and was waiting for the countdown And the race begins in five, four, three two, one, go. 12 go-karts immediately squealed to life as the riders floored their way forward. Right off the bat, the 12 cars were going straight up into the air. The crowd below pulsated with excitement as they lay witness to the sport. I was gripping the wheel tightly while praying that I wasn't going to get fucked up as the go-karts around me continued to speed forward. I didn't want to end up in last place, so I put my foot down the pedal and sped forward. Like I had already seen, the course transcended gravity, as did all of Gignosco. The cars flipped, twisted, and curved along the starting place and over the swamp. I could see so much of Gignosco, including the distant middle and outer realms, which I had not visited, nor would I visit. The black tarred track flashed up against the violet hues of the multicolored sky. I went from twelfth to sixth over the course of two laps, and began the third lap by cracking into the top five. I couldn't really hear the announcements, but I wondered what kind of stir I was creating to drive go-karts that summer, as part of a local competition, was breathtaking. That was some real adrenaline right there, some test of survival type of shit. I could feel the smell of burning rubber, the shifting of energy and the small levels of aggression which bubbled between competitors. I would never compete with go-karts ever again, but I could still recall the way the wheel turned in my grip. How close to the ground I was riding so low you would have thought I'd wear out the cart and become nothing more than rubbish on the track. But I was decent. Never the best, but never the worst. Fourth place now. The track's body twisted in a large helix before circling itself. I gunned the cart, unable to truly see how the carts were going behind me. But ahead of me, I could see the top three. Cracking the top three would be awesome, although I was proud to be holding fourth, I gunned forward testing the limits of the go-kart as the large circles ended into a loop. I wasn't sure on the rules, but I was about to pull something risky. Instead of taking the loop, I gunned it off the loop and free flew into the air. Down below, I could hear the gasps of the audience as I slammed down to the track and continued forward. I had stolen second place now, and I was able to retain my steel as well. Just one guy now, but by this point, I didn't know how I'd get that victory. The track swept a few hills, although there was nothing actually which caused the hills besides the build of the course. Finally, I crossed the line and was able to get second place. The crowd went haywire as in front of me turned out to be Mark Tambone while I had jumped in front of Kevin Cascadu. The two were the most famous go-kart racers along with this Shannon woman who wasn't in this race, and a newbie had threatened the hell out of them. After I parked and got out of the car, Benjamin immediately approached me. His face split into a large shock. The staff swarmed me, but luckily I was able to escape, but not after Benjamin gave me some heavy cash. Immediately, the crowd swarmed me as well, but Jerome and I were able to dip. We got to the back of The Rock in the tight space of hotels, living arrangements, and cityscape. Want to take a night off? Jerome smiled. Jerome and I dropped money for a cheap hotel room with two beds. I had a small flashback of when James Bois and I got to stay in a room like this back at Gear Castle. How come that felt like a year ago? When in reality, it was just a day or two ago. Time continued to play Mystery Man in Gignosco, and I was nothing but a part of that wheel. Jerome explained to me a bit later. Of course it is. Sounds good to me. Jerome left, and I soon exited the hotel room and went down to the hotel bar. The name of the hotel was Comfy Inn, some cheap-ass title for a cheap-ass place. I immediately ordered a large vodka Coke and began sipping on it. Thankfully, the bar was quite clear, and those that would potentially recognize me were not going to talk to me here anyway. This was the kind of hotel bar where conversations didn't exist. But I was wrong. A half hour in, I was sipping on my third drink while watching another go-kart race when a woman sat down right next to me. You did well today, the woman whispered. Her voice was both feminine and masculine in a mix of sweetness and power. All for a rookie. Are you going to be a one-timer, or are you going to compete in the future? Nah, this is a one-time thing. I have shit to do. I'm Ray. Hopefully, some of the shit you have to do can include me. Smooth, Ray. I'm Sydney. Sydney Mercer. That's what they called you out there. So, it's your real name? I promise it's real. It's real interesting. Ray's hair was beautifully bleached blonde, although she could have been a natural blonde for all I knew. She wore light makeup, mainly because she didn't need it. Ray was indeed the kind of girl I could be attracted to, but on Earth, I was far too indebted to my nature to care about sex. But here, Gignosco had awoken things inside me that I could not tame. I had never felt attraction like this before. Indeed, my dick was slowly beginning to throb in coherence with my heartbeat as blood flowed where it had never really gone before. The dry creek within had become flooded with water. The masses of hormones and feelings moved within me. Ray was like a trial for me. She was a moment of social intrigue. I didn't need to have sex even though the feelings of desire had implicated themselves into me. But there was something more about wanting to try pleasurable sex. I didn't think I'd ever had the opportunity to have sex for pleasure ever again. Was that making sense here? Needless to say, minutes later, Ray and I were in bed. Her hair was sprawled upon the mattress like a Delta, while our clothes were in undiscriminating piles upon the hotel floor. Jerome had promised that he'd be gone for a while, so I figured I had plenty of time to try this experiment with Ray. "'It truly felt like I was losing my virginity, "'but in a strong, sensual manner. "'There was no timidness, confusion, or reservation "'within my hands and movements. "'My fingers grabbed her breasts and squeezed to feel the texture. Raised nipples became hardened like knotted wood "'while her curvaceous body arched to my position. "'We both moaned for different causes, "'gripped on similar reasoning. "'And finally, with a condom wrapped around my fully hard member, "'we engaged in the union for which I constantly had denied myself. "'I denied it because there seemed to be no other way to accept it. Life had never offered me this. The sensation caused my toes to curl and my hands to spread outward. I had thought that sex was more about attraction, but realized, indeed, it was about pleasure. Sex was a sport, and for me, I didn't think it mattered too much who was pitching, catching, or what sex they were. Everyone had a hole or two in their body. Everyone had bunches of nerves, which reacted with delight. Upon completion, I had my first full-fledged orgasm. With the act down, Ray stood up. Oh, fuck, Ray whispered. You pounded me pretty well. are you okay i asked both intrigued with her reaction and worried that i had injured her i think so ray looked down and a small liquid squirted out of her vagina normally i'd probably be unconcerned but it wasn't blood cum or normal juice i could see the yellow blob even as small as this one was ray was without second thought an eater good i smiled as i stood up well you should be leaving soon already so soon Ray questioned, no doubt wanting to stay so she could eat me in some degree. She wasn't a negative. They cared more about flesh. But an eater like her would want something such as my time or vigor. Another flashback to Marie Gay in the Feral Mountains. I'm sorry, I sighed. My friend will be back soon. I didn't want to kill Ray, but my life would naturally come first. Ray got off the bed and was only a few feet away from me. Come now, Ray smiled. Let's go another round. Back up, Ray. Why? Are you scared? Ray was only two feet away and was coming closer. You act like we didn't just have sex just now. I said, don't come forward. Why, baby? I could feel my body shake a little bit, and I knew that, like Helena Price, I was slowly being drifted into Snackville. Without considering my actions, I punched Ray in the jaw. Ray flew back a few yards, and the whirl around me settled. The shaking died as did any fleeting feeling of being eaten. Is this because, she asked, sprawled out on the floor. You're an eater, I muttered. "'Get the fuck out and get away from me, "'or else I'll kill you.' "'Can you blame me?' Ray whispered, "'her mouth spilling out with the yellow goops of blood "'which gave her away further. "'How could I not seek you down? "'I live for eating off power.' "'You won't get my power,' I whispered, "'pushing her backwards. "'Immediately, she struck forward "'with no weapon besides her hands. "'We fought back and forth. "'The whole time, she tried suckling off my power "'for her own benefit. "'With another punch to the face, "'Ray stepped back a few placements.' Your power now is double what it was before, Ray smiled. Her nose had been broken by my second punch, while yellow-globbed blood flew down her face. I fucking want you! Ray came at me again, and this time overwhelmingly so. She had trapped me a few times, but I was able to wrestle free from her. Finally, I grabbed her down and slammed her onto the hotel bed. I said to stop, I whispered. Why can't you just stop? Because this is who I am ray whispered even though my chokehold had her absolutely cut off for the most part air was finding it tough to enter her body while veins popped like freshly made popcorn kernels you can stop this can i stop this can i stop who i inherently am ray was able to free herself and leaned in with one single movement i grabbed the hotel room lamp and slammed it down upon ray's face a spray of chunky yellow blood coated my body in the hotel bed Ray was now dead, but she had not been truly a human. She had been a monster. A small one at best, but a monster all the same. I moved a bit, but sat at the edge of the bed. I couldn't really move right now. I was once again overwhelmed. The eaters, chunky yellow goo, trailed off of her body and soaked into the sheets behind me. Her blonde hair was once again displayed like a Chinese fan, although there was no wind underneath those sails. Chapter negative 25. Pardon me. Jerome did not ask many questions upon his return. We did not feel comfortable staying in the hotel room with the body of an eater in one of the beds, so we decided to leave. This place seemed kind of like a freeing location considering it was a fun entertainment hub. But even with the heavy joys of fun came the situational immortality, which destroyed folks. I was not going to be destroyed. We walked to the middle of the air, leaving in a straight line from the go-kart track and heading south. The next thing in sight were four small rocks, each laden with a different piece. Far below was a large wreck. I wasn't sure what the wreck was part of, so for now, I decided to aim for the nearing piece. The nearest rock was of a large castle similar to the Gear Castle. The design was different. While Gear Castle looked more European, if anything, in design, the castle south of us was Middle Eastern or Russian. The main building and its side towers were decorated with bulb-like toppings. Its walls were silver with gold trim. Do you know anything about that place? I do. Jerome nodded as we continued to walk into the void space of Gignosco.
1: That's where the Prince of Metal lives. What do you know about the Prince of Metal? He's a very smart man. Very powerful, but very individualistic. He's not like being challenged and likes to be superior. Superior, I muttered. Interesting. Do you think he knows about Clark or the code? Probably does. Jerome explained. I think you need to be careful. Why careful? You don't want to step on his toes. I've heard plenty of stories involving individuals who have gotten in the way of the Prince of Metal's footsteps. Why is he called the Prince of Metal? Apparently he's well-versed at both blade work and making metal or some shit. I don't know too much about him. The Prince of Metal likes to keep his liege and himself cut out of the loop. They purposely utilize mystery to their advantage, especially because the Prince of Metal has reportedly some interesting things that he and his men like to investigate. According to sources, they are among the first researchers within Gignasco. Clark could be one of those mysteries they'd want to find.
0: I'd rather ask them to ignore their potential information, I shrugged, perhaps failing to understand the dangerousness that Jerome had been implying. We just need to be careful not to insult them or step on their toes. Absolutely, Jerome nodded. "'We arrived on the edge of the castle and were granted access inwards "'and were led by Lorinta, who was one of the top guards "'for the Prince of Metal and Manganese Castle. "'Tell us about the estate,' I asked. "'It was built in the beginning of Gignosco,' Lorinta explained. "'Right after the birth of Clark's powers.' "'What do you call Clark's powers?' "'Lavender?' Larinta looked at me as if there was a different name she was unaware of. "'There was a second name, the Code,' but Lorenta would not be told of it today. Yes, I smiled. So Lavender created the Prince of Metal and his men. Correct, Lorenta nodded. And then the Prince of Metal created Magani's castle, his men working hard to develop his beautiful creation. It is beautiful, I nodded, as we entered the large courtyard past the first wall. There was the main bulb tower, which was part of the same square building, which connected four bulb towers on the perimeter edges. The courtyard was filled with plants and ponds, all of which were made out of metal or melted shimmering aluminum. Upon greater notice, Lorenta's entire ensemble was made out of different types of metal, which were carved into an appropriate ensemble. It seems like everything here is created with metal, I asked Lorenta as she led us inside the main building of the castle. The castle's interior seemed to confirm what I had already believed. The hung artwork, the furniture, ceilings, floor, drapes, knickknacks, and other wonders were all made out of metal. Most of the metal was a colorization of gray, although there was some copper gold, white, and black, which accented the room as well. It is, Lorenta nodded. After all, we are run by the Prince of Metal. We were led further into the castle, into what seemed to be a middle room. There were four entrances, all of which led to the middle of the room, where there was a metallic chair, which faced the south direction. Larinta, Jerome, and I moved so that we stood in front of the Prince of Metal. The Prince of Metal had skin as white as milk. His eyes were gray like the metal he controlled. His brown hair was long and in the way of his face's parts. The man looked very smart, even though he was willowy. He wore a cape which was a thin sheet of metal, while his crown was a thin band of gold. Larinta, who are these people? The Prince of Metal inquired, not even looking at one of his top guards, but upon us. Clark King's voice came into my head while Lorenta did some long-winded explanation. He was obsessed with computer science just as much as I. The only difference was that he expected the laudation while I worked hard for it. Perhaps it was because he was a rich, white, nerdy boy and I was a middle-class, average black boy. I wasn't the one who received the flack for being a computer science major, mainly because I didn't look like a nerd, but he couldn't help himself. He cared himself well, but I quickly became his rival. I didn't even try to be his rival. He dictated it all of himself, you know. Saunders saw me as a threat, partially. We were both really damn good, but there was something about me that he wanted. Most likely the respect from the football players, that type of shit. So what are you doing here? the Prince of Metal asked, us while Lorenta had gone through with her notes. "'My friend and I are on a journey, and we were wondering if you could help us with information,' I asked. "'We had heard that you and your men are part of the best research within all of Gignosco.' "'Such a compliment, but such truth,' the Prince of Metal giggled like he was a high school girl who'd been asked out on a date by the school's quarterback. "'Now, what are you researchers up to? I love to spread the knowledge I have collected. "'We're looking for Clark.' "'Oh, one of my favorite research questions,' the Prince of Metal smiled. "'There's so much about Clark. I bet you are just so lost about which direction you should go in, because let's face it, there are so many. What specifically do you want to know about the original, about the creator?' "'We're interested in lavender,' I added. "'Mostly we're trying to find Clark.' The Prince of Metal laughed with heavy skepticism. I could tell that the Prince of Metal was the kind of guy who would talk down to you as though you were a child, but it went past that. It was a complete disinterest in who you were and a complete interest in raising the Prince of Metal's own identity. We are looking for Clark. The Prince of Metal felt compelled to repeat the sentiment as if he couldn't believe it. How long have you been looking for Clark? Only about a couple of weeks. I've been looking for Clark for decades, ever since he created me, the Prince of Metal smiled. And here you are, thinking you'll find him in a month's time. You don't get it, do you? Clark is not something you can easily discover like he's nothing more than a butterfly for your collection. Clark is our ruler. He is God and creator. Sidney, Jerome, was it? You are fools for going on such a journey and expecting results. There are only a couple of people in Gignasco who are worthy to find Clark, I being one of them. I'll find him before you. We've come a long way, I argued. In two weeks' time, we've been able to directionally find Clark while understand more about the code. The code? The Prince of Metal's eyes lit up while Lorenta looked as lost as a mother who had found out her perfect angel child was a demon. Is you already aware of its true name yes that's been a recent discovery it took me till last year to find that name the prince of metal was outclassed and he knew it and here you are speaking it so freely how fucking dare you how did you find this research are you here to mock me "'I am the greatest research. "'I am the one destined to find Clark. "'I am the future of Gignasco. after all.' "'The Prince of Metal pulled out a sword "'which had been on the side of his metallic throne. "'He stood up. "'The sheet of metal which was his cape "'shimmered while moving in a stale mannerism. "'Lorenta pulled out her own sword, "'following her master's taste. "'View. "'You are hacks. "'You are not real. "'There is no way you know anything you speak of.' i will destroy you here lest you stand in the way of my goals nobody challenges the prince of metal and survives i opened the bag upon my back and tossed helena price's sword to jerome barkley jerome grabbed the sword and looked at it as if he had never seen one before using the same technique i had performed for dean ezba's back in collegium city i created a sword out of red orange and yellow energy which winded together in a glowing moving structure My last blade had been of white, gray, and red, but now I was a shimmering warm color of violence. There was a silence between us, which was personally filled by more of an explanation of the Prince of Metal. Saunders would do something that pushed our rivalry to a point past normal. Saunders purposely destroyed my class computer, which held all my research. There was film of him doing it, and as such, he did get in trouble. But I was poor, I was blacker, and I was not much of a whiny bitch as Saunders. Instead of being suspended or expelled, Saunders was dropped from the class and received an F on his transcript. It would be small damage for the ever A student. My teacher understood and managed to pull a project together and get an A in class. The following semester, Saunders started working on his own project as he re-entered the computer system's research, design, and application course. Why fight us? I questioned the Prince of Metal. I guess that the Prince of Metal slash Saunders had a personality where he could not let things go. Clearly, our pool of knowledge angered him, either because we had gained it so quickly, or because he thought we were frauds. Because you insult me and will not have it, the Prince of Metal's answer was unsound, but I could tell he found it purely logical. It would be a two-on-two, the Prince of Metal and his guard, Lorenta, against Jerome and I. Immediately, the two struck at us. Initially, the Prince of Metal and I fought, while Jerome and Lorenta fought against one another. The swords clashed between all four of us, as we fought in an otherwise quite empty throne room. The Prince of Metal and Lorenta both wore tons of metal, which, although molded light, slowed them down. Granted, Jerome looked awkward with his own movements, and I was worried he was going to be taken down. The Prince of Metal struck forward, missing my throat by inches. I stepped backwards to cut off the rest of his advantage before striking forward of my own account. This battle was pointless. There was nothing gained from it, but Gignosco and I differed on meaning. Its inhabitants were more likely to die for their beliefs than in most places upon Earth. My blade slammed into the chest piece, but the Prince of Metal's armor clothing went unscathed. I'd have to shove my sword in a thrust motion to even try and get through the metal. The Prince of Metal twisted the blade to aim for my eyes and the brain between them. I flipped through the air and landed with a large thump upon the metallic floor. I looked over to find that Lorenta was very close to absolutely obliterating Jerome. I moved across the way and appeared to Lorenta's side. Lorenta had been so focused on destroying Jerome that she failed to recognize I was behind her until it was too late. With one swift, crunchy slash, Lorenta's head was off her body and onto the floor. The Prince of Metal looked absolutely shocked by my vapid movement, while Lorenta's head rolled like a bowling ball across the floor. Lorenta's body fell like a stack of cards while blood oozed out, looking extremely dark when contrasted with the grey metal. Yeah, not to be messed with, are you? The Prince of Metal scoffed, as if I had not just killed his guard, but perhaps trounced upon his metal garden. I don't get why you choose to mess with us. We came with peace, you didn't have to give us information. I am the one who is destined to find Clark and harness the power of Decode, the, the Prince of Metal ordered. With the code, I could change the world, could usher in a new society. Could you imagine such a beauty? I would read Gignosco, the evil humans, etheras, negatives, and other beasts which disguise themselves among us. This society could be so beautiful, could it not? Draped with my metals and flourished with my people. V could become a shimmering night in the decades of darkness. I wish to ask Clark so many questions. How could he do this to me, to us? How could he leave Gignosco as such chaos and disembodiment? I know I can help Clark change the world using the code which wrote us all up and created us. I can rewrite the code. I can cast out everything which goes against us. Us is in me and Clark. What makes you think that Clark and you are on the same level? What if Clark is a god and you are nothing more but a human? <laughs> Don't vary, Clark. I am a human being who has transcended into a god. I am both. It was a tearing of flesh, but not from my blade. Both the Prince of Metal and I looked down to see a sword sticking out of the Prince of Metal's shoulder. It was Jerome Barkley who had managed to commit damage, his sword piercing through the thin cracks between the royalty's metal ensemble. Blood poured out, already appearing rusted against the steel. The human who had become God slowly realized the blow, his face burning bright like a bonfire in the dead night. Damn it, the Prince of Metal whispered. "Lorento was already done for, and now so is he well it was a shoulder injury but it didn't seem like one of those livable injuries either jerome removed his sword while the prince of metal stood in silence without another word the prince of metal gathered all the energy he could before running across the room he ran back to his throne and pressed a button before staring at me directly the button had raised a blaring alarm whose sheer howl was an indication that something threatening was happening whether it was for the safety of the Prince of Metal or an alarm for his castle in charge, I was worried. For some reason, Jerome had been the one to deliver the potentially mortal blow to the Prince of Metal, but I was the one who the Prince of Metal addressed as if he knew I was the leader of this duo. You will not escape Magne's Castle alive, the Prince of Metal threatened before collapsing as the metal sheet which held his backside covered more of his unconscious body. We need to go." Jerome screamed as he began running out the nearest door, which was to the south. I wasn't sure if the Prince of Metal was dead, but Clark King was about to inform me of the significance even as I ran after Jerome. It was not my idea. It was Jerome Barkley's idea to destroy Saunders' research a week before it was due. I told Jerome not to do it, but Jerome did it anyway. Jerome thought he'd get away with it, but he was caught. Saunders was so pissed that he demanded action. And the beta tower was so worried. We thought that Jerome was going to get expelled. It wasn't as bad as that, thankfully. Jerome was still going to receive his diploma, but he would not walk on stage for graduation. I felt so bad that Jerome had been kicked out of the graduation event, but he was okay with it. I don't think it affected our friendship. I think it was the end of college. Us in the real world. At least, I think. Everything which occurred in Gignosco would have meaning. Everything. And I knew from Clark's own words that Jerome's time with me was going to come to an end. Jerome had led us into what seemed to be a large, empty library. Nobody was here, just tables, desks, and stacks of books. We decided to run all the way down to the last doorway. Before we could exit the library, the door opened to reveal six armed guards, each decked out with metallic armor. Fuck, get down. I whispered to jerome as i pulled open the bag to reveal my own gun i imagined bullets and it filled accordingly while the six guards each entered the room i prepared myself in position the best way to take them down would be to shoot them in the head each would be a kill shot and i wouldn't have to worry about their potentially bulletproof armor while ducking behind the desk i lined up my first shot and took it the guard fell and immediately it gave away my position the other five guards quickly honed in on me and i had to move and continue firing upon a seemingly endless amount of bullets Jerome remained hidden and was able to take down one of the guards with Helena Price's sword. Finally, with the room cleared, we moved to another room which mimicked the first library room. These rooms were interesting because they were filled with books, some of the only objects we had seen which had not been made of metal, but of paper. The computers themselves were probably filled with the collection of research the Prince of Metal had kickstarted. I was curious to whether or not the Prince of Metal had survived, but I supposed those kinds of questions could be examined when I wasn't trying to fight my way out of his domain. Four guards entered the room from both sides, which turned out to be heavily problematic. "'Slowly, I took on the eight guards while Jerome Barkley had went from sword virgin to sword expert. "'Jerome took out two of the guards for me while I shot the rest in the face. "'Finally, we arrived back in the front lobby of the building, "'but this was where the Prince of Metal was waiting for us with his armed guards. "'Goodness gracious, did you two enjoy my library?' The Prince of Metal asked as his firing squad prepared themselves. Blood stained his body, but he appeared fine after taking the blow. The lobby was filled with life, besides the seating arrangements decorated out of cold, hardened metal. I hope you didn't steal any of my research. But I already suspect you did. I could see that the Prince of Metal's shoulder wound had been quickly bandaged. He must have known that either way, we'd end up back in the lobby in an effort to escape. And now, here he was, waiting for Jerome and I. I want to kill him myself, the Prince of Metal whispered. His gun aimed at Jerome first. Fow about this bitch first. The Prince of Metal's gun went off and the bullet tore through Jerome's neck. Jerome immediately got pushed backwards from the force and landed with a large slam against the floor of the lobby. I looked down at Jerome to find that he was shaking, blood trailing against the floor. I turned to view the Prince of Metal, who looked extremely satisfied with the kill. Jerome stopped shaking and didn't move at all. His death was reminiscent of the weak friendship that seemed to have happened with Clark, following Jerome's sabotage to Saunders' project. The Prince of Metal aimed his gun at me. Vion next. No, I wasn't going to be. Before the Prince of Metal could fire a bullet, I twisted and began running away from the Prince of Metal and his men. I ran in a zigzag pattern in order to make aiming a bullet harder. Bullets were fired from the Prince of Metal and his brigade as they began to chase after me. The bullets ricocheted and knocked down a few of the guards in an ironic, friendly fire. I was still far from freedom within the Manganese Castle, but now I was down one ally. It was now just me, alone and on the run from the Prince of Metal and his men. I hated to leave Jerome Barclay's body behind, but there was no way I was going to be able to take it with me. I managed to get out of the castle and into the courtyard, all while the alarm continued to form to life. There were guards on the final wall who now aimed their guns at me. I noticed that the entry door had been closed as if to trap me in the courtyard, but I had a quick idea. Using the technique which came in handy before, I began to rise up into the air. Soon enough, I was on top of the wall. Guards immediately began firing their weapons at me and I quickly took out a couple guards while using some random boxes as cover. With those guards finished, I immediately left the wall and left the property. I didn't know which direction to follow, so I went south, which out so much as a thought while bullets continued to pop off in the background. Thanks so much for listening. For more podcasts created by Steadfast Media Company, check out our website at steadfastmedia.home.blog or join us on Twitter at SteadfastMCO. That's at SteadfastMCO. And at the end of this ten-part series, I'll be releasing the text in novel form. But until next time...